All right, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. We're going to read these out loud, and I would encourage you to, to join me. Here we go. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we pause to say thank you. Thank you for the day. We thank you for the changing of the seasons, which reminds us that you are a creative God. We thank you for the gathering of your church today. And Lord, we're here to worship, to, to do what you've commanded us to do, to not forsake the gathering of ourselves together. But more than that, Lord God, we're here to worship you. We're, we come that um, you might open our eyes to who you are and what you wish to do in our life. We, 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 we give you license, Lord God, to, to teach us, to reprove us, to correct us, to train us in righteousness today, which is exactly what your word does for us. Lord, we stand under your word that you might speak into our lives and change us. We pray that we would hear your gospel, that it would be liberating for us, and that we would grow in the likeness of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. And everyone said, amen. Amen. So if you're joining us for the, for the first time or the first, for the first time in quite a while, we are in the midst of a series in the Gospel of John. And what John is encouraging us to do is to get to know who Jesus is. His whole purpose is to unfold snapshots of the life of Jesus. Um, and John shows us all these miracles that Jesus does. And his aim is that we would believe, that we would believe that Jesus is all that he says he is and that he's come to do uh, all the great things that he says he's come to do. Primarily, he's come to uh, liberate us, free us from our sins. And today we get to see John, uh, Jesus' first miracle. Uh, we get to peep in at a, a first century wedding. Now, one of the, the greatest joys that I have as a pastor is to walk with the couple through pre premarital counseling and then actually to officiate their wedding. There's actually a couple here today that I got to officiate uh, their wedding, and Dre's mom is back in the in the back from the cold Wisconsin. She's come down to lukewarm D.C., so welcome. Glad to have you in our service today. Um, I have to admit, I've seen some great, there's, there's, ne there's no such thing as a bad wedding. Because, you know, weddings, uh, whether it's a small wedding or uh, just very elaborate, uh, they, they're all beautiful in their own right because a wedding speaks of, of something outside of itself. And without doubt, the most beautiful wedding that I have experienced and got to participate in 
was Dre and Febby's wedding. I mean, it was just beautiful. I should have put a picture up here, but I didn't have any. But here's the thing about, about weddings. Weddings, whether if you're married and you are, are witnessing a wedding, then you, you're, you're, you're forced to remember. You're forced to remember all the things that you felt when you were getting married. And you might even be brought back to the, the love that you had that might have waned a little bit. And you're, you're, you're forced to remember all those things that you felt and that, you know, how, and you're, you're reflecting on how life has transpired as you view another wedding, perhaps, that's happening right in front of you. If you're single, you know, a lot of times if you're single, I mean, you don't want to go to a wedding because, I mean, it just reminds you, I mean, it just it reminds you of how much you don't have. It, it, it invokes longing in you. For a lot of times, a, a single person wanting to get married, you go to a wedding and it's like, oh, man, I want this so much. But as I said before, a wedding is supposed to, to, to point to something far grander than itself. And this, this passage here where Jesus turns water into a wine, he's at a, uh, he's, he's at a wedding. And this wedding also does that. It points to something that's grander than itself. Verse 1, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And so I'm going to basically give you, a, this is a three-point sermon. We're going to talk about the setting. The setting is one of crisis. Uh, it's a grand occasion and something bad goes wrong. All right. And then we're going to talk about the, the sign, uh, a miracle that Jesus does to set everything right. And then we're going to look at uh, some implications of this uh, first century wedding in, in our lives today. And so what we learn in verse two is just really the, the setting of what's going on in this particular wedding. We have a, a big wedding in a small town in Cana of Galilee. Uh, Gal- uh, Cana is about eight or nine miles outside of Nazareth where Jesus, uh, Jesus was born and, and grew up. Um, this is a hometown wedding. Now, some of you might be surprised that Jesus is actually at a wedding. Um, we learned in, in John chapter 1, he unfolded in, in, in very grandiose style that, I mean, Jesus is God. I mean, he, he told us all these great titles of Jesus. And uh, if you don't know a lot about Jesus or God, you might think, well, why in the world is, is God, you know, the, the man who is God at a wedding? And really, this, what we see here in this passage is the reception, the, the party of the wedding. And so Jesus is, I don't know if y'all realize this, Jesus is partying. Why in the world is Jesus partying? Well, I would tell you, uh, you know, although John paints a picture that Jesus is divine, Jesus is also a dude. Do y'all know that? Jesus is a dude. Dude is a technical term for uh, human being of the male persuasion. That's, that's all a dude is. Jesus was fully man. He's also fully God. And so the human part of Jesus, like all the rest of us, I mean, he, I mean, he liked the party. And so this is what we get to see, the, 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 the human side of Jesus here. Uh, he had brothers and sisters that were at this, at this particular wedding. Uh, he had a mama. She was at the wedding. We don't know what Mary, you know, what her part was. He had friends. And his friends obviously thought so much of him that they would invite Jesus to the wedding as well. And, and Jesus must have had a special place in um, in this circle of friends, because they not only let him him come with his mama and his and his siblings, but he got to bring his disciples as well. I mean, we at, at this point he only has five disciples, 
And, and these disciples would have been tagging along with Jesus, listening to his every word, doing whatever he said to do. And Jesus probably woke up one morning and said, hey, guys, we're going to a wedding. He said, can we go to? There they are. Andrew, Peter, um, Nathaniel, Philip, John. They're all there at this wedding having a grand old time. Um, I think what we should notice here is that Jesus is he's not some religious conservative. A lot of times we think and Jesus is God and he I mean, he has these things that he does and, and does not do. This, this breaks the mold into what we would think of, uh, uh, you know, a, a religious guru. Jesus is obviously God himself, but Jesus liked to have fun. He's not a hermit. He's not a recluse. A simple reading of the Gospels lets us know that Jesus liked to hang out with people so much so that he would go to, he would even come to a wedding. And that's a pretty cool thing. But of course, this caused problems for Jesus. Later on, we would find out that the, the, the really religious people, um, they didn't like the fact that Jesus was so loose, that he liked to go and hang out with just normal people. They, they wouldn't have done this. They wouldn't have, gone to a, they wouldn't have gone to a commerce wedding and sat down at a reception and hung out with normal people. In fact, later on, they'll, they'll, go to the, they'll, they'll accuse Jesus of being a glutton and a drunkard. And I mean, that's, that's a sign for us that Jesus actually did like to have fun. He liked to party. And so um, this is a wedding. Weddings have always been a big deal. Weddings were a big deal in the first century. This is a Jewish wedding. Uh, weddings are, I mean, they're no, uh, they're no more important today than they were back then. That weddings are a big thing. Think about your own wedding if you got married, how, how elaborate it was, how um, maybe exhausting it was. I think about my own wedding. Um, actually, I, don't, I can't think about the preparation for my wedding because I wasn't even around. I was in Korea for 13 months. Uh, I proposed to my wife in the middle of uh, my tour in Korea. I said, hey, let's get married. And then I, I just went back to Korea and said, you figure it out. But I do remember this. When I came back, uh, this is 94, 95, a long time ago when dinosaurs used to be on the earth. So um, I came back home, and we were, I mean, we had three months to go before the wedding. And Larissa had all these months, basically four or five months, she had been working all these details. And that was the one thing that, that I remember the most, is that all the details, I mean, inundating details upon details, flowers and the color of the dresses and what kind of tuck you're supposed to wear, the clothes you wear before you get married and the clothes you wear after you get married and the honeymoon, you know, all this stuff. And oh, by the way, there's a reception. The, the pressure of all this stuff that you have to deal with at a wedding, it can be inundating. There's no such thing as a bad wedding. Although some things can go wrong at weddings, I mean, you know, there's like nothing absolutely always goes right. I remember at Dre, Dre and February's wedding, I was in, it was in D.C. I was in route. I'm the officiating minister, right? I forgot the marriage license. And it's like, I was like, oh, I was, all, I was like at the church without the marriage license. I had to go all the way back home, Alexandria, Virginia, like right up the street here, and I barely made it in time. Y'all remember that? Did you, did you even know that, Fevy? There it is. <laughs> it was, you had all kind of drama in the backdrop of your wedding, and thank God you didn't know about it, because you would have been mad at me. All right, so, I mean, something always goes wrong at a wedding. Um, I, think about the receptions. I, at a reception, I mean, it's just, it's just fun. You might have bad food. You might have a bad DJ playing YMCA. <laughs> this wedding wasn't like that. 
This was actually a pretty cool wedding. We don't get to see the ceremony itself, but we get to see the partying part, uh, the partying part of, of this Jewish wedding. Uh, Jewish weddings in the first century were huge celebrations. Uh, weddings were week-long affairs. They had the best food, the best drink, the best music, eating, dancing, drinking, fun-filled fellowship for hours upon hours, and then they just push reset, and they did it every day for seven days. Can you imagine that? The detail, the elaborate nature of all this, the money that they, <laughs> that they possibly spent um, entertaining all these folks. But this is what we should picture Jesus in, in, in the midst of this wedding. He's not sitting in a corner. He's not checking his watch. He's not looking bored. He's not wondering who'll catch him because he's religious and he doesn't want any other religious people to, to catch him. No, he's, he's in the mix with all these people. He's with his friends. He's in, I mean, he is, he is in it. I mean, he is having fun. He is a part of this celebration with his friends and the bridal party. Chapter, uh, verse 3. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Uh-oh. This is the turning point. So this is the turning point in this, in this little true story. Um, everything that could go wrong went wrong at this point. Not the wedding itself, but the reception. Um, this is the ultimate New Testament party foul, right? The, the, the wine is gone, and, and they, they, uh, it just came upon them without... Um, without much notice. And I've, I've had a little bit of Greek training. You guys know that I'm, I'm a seminary trained pastor, and I'm going to let you in on one of the great secrets of the Bible in terms of a Greek word. Guess what the Greek word for wine is? Wine. <laughs> I've paid thousands of dollars to be able to tell you that. Thousands. The Greek word for wine is wine. So guess what? Guess what ran out? It was like fully loaded, ID required, 21 and over, alcoholic content, wine. They had no more. Oh, my goodness. What are we going to do? We don't know if it was a red or if it was a, it was a white. It might have been a blend. We don't know what kind of wine it was, but we do know it was wine. And it was a really big deal in this culture to run out of wine. It's, it's, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around it unless you were in the Jewish culture in, in that day. But this was, this was scandalous bad. I mean, it was really bad. You know, wine has always been a symbol of joy and celebration for the people of God. And so at this Jewish celebration, the wine that they served and they celebrated with would have been a focal point of of the wedding itself. There's one Jewish proverb that reads, there is no rejoicing without wine. Translating that is like, you ain't got no wine. We can't have a good time. I mean, that really is how they how they felt. I, I love what the psalmist said in Psalm 104. Psalm 104 is this is this beautiful, wonderful psalm declaring God's provision for his people and his salvation in the middle of that psalm, verse 15 says this, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen strengthen man's heart. And so wine was, uh, it was uh, an immensely important component to the to Jewish worship, to the Jewish religion, to, to social um, and community life for a Jew, especially for ceremonial ritual like this wedding here. God gave wine to gladden the heart. And, you know, in our day, 
We look at wine a little differently because we see such great abuses of it. Maybe you've been in a family where someone's an alcoholic and your only thought of wine is in the, in the midst of, of that context. Someone drinking so much that it would ruin their lives and perhaps jeopardize the life of, of your family. Wine wasn't like that in this, in this culture. Yes, they could drink a lot of it. They actually drank a lot of it here in, in this wedding. They did. We'll see that in a couple seconds. But um, that's not what's going on here. God gave wine as a, as a gift. The fruit of the vine was used for celebration and to be consumed uh, with self-control. And so here they run out of wine, which is not good. Uh, it would have meant public humiliation for the bridal party. The groom could have gotten in legal trouble because I, mean, I don't understand it, but a part of this culture is you are expected to throw a, a party, a week-long party, and have some fixings. With the, with the beverage to go with it, and he, he, I mean, it ran out. And that would have caused great shame for them. And that's not the way that you would want to start your marriage. And so here comes the mother of Jesus, Mary, and she comes up to her sons like, Jesus, they have no wine. You got to do something. We don't know what Mary's involvement was. She might have been the wedding coordinator. It might have been a, a family member, the, the, the couple that were getting Mary, Mary might have just been um, internalizing her own, the, the way she got married. I mean, think about the scrutiny uh, and the contention of Mary having a child out of wedlock and then getting married to, to Joseph and all that Luke 2 unveils for us about how she got married. We, we don't know. I'm speculating at best. But we do know that somehow Mary knew they had given out a wine and she comes to the one that she knew could do something about it. And, and it's interesting Jesus didn't just give in to Mary. He throws a curveball. Verse 4. Verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus rebukes his mama. Don't do that, fellas. Check it out. Don't, don't do that. Like, like this afternoon, uh, like Dre's mom is here. He would get a spanking. If he's like, Woman, He's like lounging on the couch waiting for her to bring him some gumbo because she's from Louisiana. She's making the best gumbo ever. That's what we're just talking about out in the foyer. And so he's like, she's like, Dre, could you get up and do something for me? He's like, woman, it's not my time. My hour's not yet come. <laughs> Gents, don't do that because you might get a slap across the face. All right, you're watching the game, finish, finishing up all the conference games this afternoon, trying to see who's going to get in the, the tournament next week. Don't do that to your wife either. Honey, could you go do something for me? And she's like, woman, it's not my time. My hour has not yet come. You might, that might not go too well for you. And so this is what Jesus is saying. He is saying it's not my time. But the, uh, the ESV translate, translates the word correctly. It's, it's not my hour. And that's a really important word in John's gospel in particular, but in all the Bible, because it points to a, a, a very important thing. It points to the gospel. This word hour is used seven times in John's gospel alone to mean the hour of his death. And so when Jesus is saying, it's not my hour, he's thinking about that time that he would stretch out his arms at Calvary, pinned to a cross, and he would die for the sins of all the people like you and I. And he's saying, it's not time for that glory to be revealed right now. It's not time for that. And that really is what the whole Bible is all about. And it's interesting that Jesus brings this up right here amidst his first miracle. He's saying, it's not time for my glory to be revealed. There'll be a time for it to come, but now it's not 
that time. And so he, he, rebukes, he rebukes Mary and says, hey, it's not that I can't help with the wine. I'm just not going to help in the way that you think I'm going to help. Verse 5. And, uh, and he said to them, that's verse 6. Where's verse 5? All right. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Did we read verse 5 already? All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So, all right. So Mary says, do whatever he tells you. Let me pause right there. You know, there's a lot of moms here in this room. Um, and this is, this is a, a pretty good counsel from a mom. You ever thought about that? This is, she, Mary knew a lot about Jesus. Now, there are indications in this passage that she, you know, when she told him, go, go make some, go do something for them. She might not have known Jesus' exact mission, but Mary had angels visiting. She had magi that came at his birth. She knew that she knew there was something special about her child. Just like every mom in here that's had a kid knows that kid better than anybody else. Mary knew her, her child, that he would grow up to be very great. And she knew particularly that, she, that he could do something to help out in the situation She likely didn't know the extent of who he would become and how he was going to become it. But she did know something special about Jesus, such that he said, she said, do whatever he tells you. And and that's good advice for all of us. If if someone has something for you to do, do what Jesus tells you to do, because it's going to come out right if you do that. Now, let's go to verse six. Uh, Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 Gallons. All right, so this is a Jewish wedding, and it's full of ritual and ceremony. Again, not, not kind of like the weddings that we have today in terms of the, the ritual part, but they, as typical for any Jewish worship, to include a wedding, uh, they would want to be ceremonial, ceremonial clean. And so they had stone water jars, and the, the, um, they would fill them with water, and the folks would come and wash their feet and wash their hands. The Jews were, uh, were uh, they were... Uh, they were overly clean from an outwardly perspective. They wanted, uh, they were focused on outward, uh, outward cleanliness. Okay, God wanted them to be inwardly clean. They were focused on outwardly cleanliness, and so that, that's why these stone water jars would have been there. I don't know what they look like. I think a modern day version of it would be uh, if you go to a winery, um, the those those big barrels that they have that they ferment wine in. And if you can't even picture that, you've never gone to a winery. Perhaps you've gone to a party, you've seen a big super keg. Right. And so, I mean, Jesus used those uh, those stone water jars as a super keg. All right. Verse seven. That was supposed to be funny. Y'all didn't laugh. Super keg. Verse seven. My glasses aren't working today. I can't even see. I need to clean them off. And so Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim. Verse eight. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it to him. Uh, so Jesus turns to the servants and I mean, he gives some pretty simple commands. He just said, go and, and, and I mean, fill the water jars. And this is interesting because Jesus doesn't call attention to himself. He just does a simple miracle right in the midst of them without, without much fanfare. Think about how you would have done. I mean, this is your first miracle. I mean, you're, you're going to reveal a little bit about your glory. I mean, that you're God. And I mean, I would have, I mean, I would have went into a, a telephone booth and come out with my super suit on, and I would have done one of those Cam Newton, KJ, 
King Jesus, I would have had my KJ shoes on. I would have, I would have put my Iron Man suit on. I would have, I would have done one of those fiery things and you know, sparks and everything. He doesn't do any of that. He just gives really three simple commands. You know, fill the jars with water, take some, just draw it out, and then go and, and give it to the master, master of the feast. And, you know, this reminds us that, I mean, Jesus does things very simply without calling attention to himself. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't need to impress anybody. And what I like about this also is, for, for those of you here that, are, that are, aren't quite sure what you think about church and about Christianity and about Jesus, perhaps you're on the windowsill and you're peeking in, I mean, this, this, this says something to you. It says that if you're wanting to be a Christian and you're waiting just for something spectacular to happen, I mean, you don't have to wait because the, the spe- Jesus is not pointing you to the spectacular. He doesn't cause any fanfare with this miracle. He just does it without anybody knowing it. And really, the, the transformation of your heart can happen the same way. I remember when I, I was slowly becoming a Christian at West Point in college. And um, I was going through the book of John, just like we are now. And at some point, I realized, you know, I'm just going to talk. I'm going to talk to Jesus and, and see if this is real. And I know it was October of like 1990, 1989. And I knelt by my bed. And I said, all right, Lord, so I've been learning all this stuff in the Bible about you. And I said, if this is real, I'll just do something. I mean, show me that you're real. And I didn't feel anything. I mean, I thought I was supposed to get goosebumps or just like see some lightning. I thought I was supposed to hear, hey, you, down there, you, you with the hat on. No, not you, that other one. Yeah, you. I, I thought something like that was supposed to happen. And none of that happened. And so guess what I did? I knelt by my bed and I prayed that same prayer three nights in a row, thinking that something was supposed to happen. And that's not how Jesus works. Transformation happens oftentimes slowly, and it happens in many cases, without you knowing it. Jesus does not need to come with, with fanfare. He does the extraordinary, but he does it in very, very simple means. Um, verse 6, verse 7, um, introduces, introduces us to a character called, uh, verse 8 rather, the master of the feast. And this was an interesting guy. He would have been a hired, a hired professional at putting on ceremonies, of putting on weddings. He would have been like the wedding coordinator uh, a master of ceremonies and uh, a, M, uh, a DJ all rolled up into one. He would have been the one that says, "All right, guys, it's time to go do the electric slide. All right, now, now we're gonna now we're gonna give some toast to the bridal uh, bridal uh, party. Who has a toast that you want to give? All right, so uh, there's some new food set out on the table. You guys can go get a little bit to eat. We'll rest here, and then in ten minutes we'll come and do this. And so this really who was who the the master of the feast was. He's I mean he's paid to to make sure the wedding goes well. And when the wine ran out, I mean, he wouldn't have been in trouble. I mean, the supplying the food and the drink and all the, all the things for the festivities would have been the responsibility of the, the bridegroom and, and, and his, his fiance. But he would have been um, at least on the periphery of getting in trouble when the wine ran out, because so, he should have been at least observing the consumption so that they were able to react quicker than they did in this particular particular case. And I, I mean, can, can you just see it? I mean, the wine is gone, and word gets out. You're at a party, and and people start leaving. It's like, well, gosh, 
They don't have any more food. Let's, let's go find it. I mean, who has a party? Break out your smartphone. It's like, um, yeah, we're at the party. Jesus is here. Mary's here. A whole bunch of people are here. And they just gave out a wine. You, I mean, what y'all got going on down the street? And then it's like, oh, you got a party going on? You got wine too? All right, so I'm going to come. Wait, let, me quick, let me take a quick picture. I'm going to put it on social, social media so everybody knows that this couple ran out of wine. Take a quick picture. Snap. Uh, um, hashtag fail. <laughs> hashtag out of wine. Hashtag no wine. I'm coming to you. That's, isn't that what we do? He, I mean, this is the situation here. I'm making light of that. Jesus commands the servants to give some water, turn into wine, to the master of ceremony. Verse 9 and 10. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, verse 10, and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine up until now. And so the master of, of the feast, I'm going to call him the master of ceremony because master of the feast is just too hard to say. Um, he can't believe what he's tasting. Jesus has completely reversed. Um, he's reversed for this couple the, the order of, of how you would normally serve wine. And so, I mean, basically what he's saying is usually after people have drunk too much. And so, you, I mean, you bring the good wine out first and they I mean, they get their fill. Uh, obviously, they, 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 they were probably some people here are drunk. He's not commending being drunk, but that's it's a wedding. They're celebrating. And then normally they bring the poor wine or the, the less or lesser value wine out next. But the wine that Jesus made caused the master of the feast, who would have been a professional at this stuff and definitely knew his wine, the good wine from the bad wine, tastes Jesus water turned into wine and says, my, you have done something really special here. You've given us the best. I mean, whereas I would have brought out the good stuff and then served the two-buck chuck, I mean, you actually brought the two-buck chuck out first, and then you give us this this great, great wine. You guys don't know what two-buck chuck is? Charles Shaw, Trader Joe's? Here's an aside. Um, Larissa and I love wine. This is just for your edification. <laughs> so my wife and I love wine, um, and I mean, we drink wine a lot at, at dinner, just all kinds. Um, but uh, uh, pastor friends of ours, pastor friends of ours, of all people, turned us on to Trader Joe's Charles, Charles Shaw um, $3 wine. You can get uh, Merlot, Chardonnay. Um, it's, it's just a good tasting, I mean, I would almost use the word quality wine at a three-buck cost. Go to Trader Joe's today. I'm not going to pay for it for you. You get it yourself. <laughs> That's my tip from this sermon, water into wine. Let's pause. I mean, just think about this. Consider what Jesus has just done. I mean, we could, we could just glance over this and, and, and miss the, the sign, miss the miracle itself. Jesus has just turned water into wine. This is like, don't try this at home because you, I mean, you can't re- replicate this. He had no grapes. He had no soil. He had no nutrients. He had no uh, make wine kit. He had, he had nothing but his divinity. He had himself, and he had a little bit of water. This is what John chapter 1, verse 3 says. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made 
that was made. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's showing that I'm the Lord of the wine. I'm the Lord of the vine. I can make this stuff because I've made everything that can be made. Jesus is showing his power as creator for the first time. He's he's showing his promise to redeem. He's showing his promise to make all things new. This is Jesus' first sign. And and the purpose of this sign is so they might believe. All right, so let's look at uh, three implications in regards to this for us. Three quick implications. The first is, is simply this. God meets real people in real places. He meets real people in real places. Uh, This miracle points out the very particular ways that God demonstrates his power. Um, I like what John chapter 1 verse 14 says about our God. It says that when our God wants to reveal himself to us, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. That he's shown us his glory, the glory as the son from a father full of grace and truth. And so when God wants to reveal something about himself to us, when he wants to speak to us or address us, John chapter 1, verse 14, John, the, 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 the writer of this gospel, is saying that he, he comes in, in our humanity. He puts our skin on and makes himself known to us. That's how God communicates to us. God is concrete. He's specific. He's particular. And we can see that here in this I mean, in this unassuming miracle of turning water into wine, God meets real people in real places. And if you think about it, I mean, what's more real than a a wedding? There are weddings in this tradition, in this culture, in this ancient Near Eastern day were no different than ours today. He says specifically to us in chapter 2, verse 1, it was the third day. John is uh, uh, chronologizing. The, the first seven days of Jesus' earthly ministry, if you, uh, if you keep track of the days that he's, he's listening in his first few chapters. And he tells us specifically that this wedding took place on the third day in Cana of Galilee. I mean, he's giving us specific instances. He tells us the names of the people that were there. We don't know everybody, but we know the names of some of the specific people that were at this particular uh, place in this, in this wedding. And so what John is conveying t- to us is that Jesus was in a very real place with very real people, and that's how God appears to us as well. Every Sunday, God appears to us in a very real way at Hayfield Secondary School in a middle school lecture hall. And then after this, he's going to appear to you when you go to the mall and you get some, um, something to eat at one of those eateries there at the mall. And later on in the day when you're on your back porch just sipping tea, or maybe some two-buck chuck on your back porch on a nice, beautiful day as, as winter is turning into spring. Y'all really should get some chew. I mean, get the red. I don't know about the white. Get the red. All right? Um, God meets us, real people in real situations. He'll be with you at work. He's with you at home. He'll be with you where, wherever you recreate. God meets real people in real places. And it's not just super spiritual people. You don't need to be Billy Graham for God to meet you. You don't have to be very important people. It's not uh, President and Mrs. Obama that Jesus is hanging out with at this wedding. It's not Jay-Z and, and Beyonce. It's, it's not anybody special. We aren't even told their names. But the beauty here is Jesus meets with real people in real places. And perhaps you're one of those people that would say, 
you know, I'm going to get my whole life right before I, I, I try to in any way experience God. And I think just the, the nature of this miracle and the situation here is that God doesn't require us to wait. Good days, bad days, indifferent days, Jesus invites us. In fact, he's showing here that he's willing to be around the most ordinary people that there could possibly be. You know, a, a few of us have this perspective. If you're a Christian, it might be, all right, so if I, if I wake up and have a good quiet time and I'm able to, to have a, lot, a little bit of self-control as I go about my day, I don't blow up on anybody, I don't do anything wrong, then it's a good day and I've experienced God and now I'm ready to come and worship him on Sunday. And if you're not a Christian, and you know, you're kind of on the windsill peeking in, wanting to be a Christian, and you, you, I mean, you're just feeling God out, then you feel like, all right, so if I mess up on Monday, then I'll try again on Tuesday. If I mess up on Tuesday, then I'll try again on Wednesday. And you keep on going, and you never let yourself fully experience God. And in the midst of this wedding, what's the, what's the deal? I mean, something bad happened. And so the invitation is... God meets real people in real places, and regardless of what your situation is or what you're going through, um, good days, bad days, and different days, God will meet with you too. Second thing is we're called to participate in life with God. We are called to participate in life with God. And the, the neat thing here, this is just a common story that John is, is introducing to us about Jesus, how he encountered people that were, um, they were, immensely ordinary. Jesus didn't come so that we could get our theological answers right. He didn't come so we could have a cognitive experience of of his divinity. He came so that we would experience life and relationship with him. And the way the Bible articulates that is it says that, that God offers us an abundant life. And a lot of times we get that wrong in the church. You know, we, we point to the Bible and says, as long as I can know what the Bible says, then I'll be good to go. And I would tell you, yes, the way that God reveals himself to us is, is through this Bible. But this is the deal about the Bible that you have. This Bible is doing one thing for you. It is, it is revealing to you who God is, but it's also pointing you to that God. It's pointing you to Jesus. And so why do you read your Bible? Why do you pray? It's so that it would point you to the, I mean, the, the one true God. And in the first century, this was no different. Later on, um, Three, four weeks from now, we'll be in John chapter 5. And the religious leaders had this perspective, is that if I know the scriptures, the scriptures are going to give me eternal life. And that, that's kind of untrue. The scriptures will tell you all about God. Yes, they will. But eternal life comes when we surrender our hearts to Jesus, not necessarily know a whole bunch about him. Scripture says the demons know about Jesus, but they won't be saved. And so the scriptures point us to Jesus, that we would experience who he really is. And that really is why salvation is associated with wine in the Bible. Why all the fixation about wine in Scripture? It's because wine is a picture of our, of our salvation. This is what Isaiah 25 says. I love this passage. Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He'll swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he'll take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will, it will be set up on that day. 
Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. I mean, it's this beautiful picture that Isaiah is, is, is giving us that there'll be wine when we experience the fullness of salvation. I mean, and, and so wine is this, this symbol of the abundance of God. The, the, uh, God's abundance that comes to us in the midst of our salvation. And I think what John chapter 2 is doing is he's, he's showing the fulfillment of what Isaiah prophesied about. Isaiah prophesied that God would give us an abundance, a fullness of salvation. And then John talks about a, a simple wedding where Jesus shows up. And what's the picture he gives us? They run out of wine and Jesus turns six water jars into wine, an abundance of wine. But like any wedding, this points not to itself, but something greater than that. It's pointing to the fact that that there'll be days where we'll actually sit with Jesus at a table at a banquet called the wedding feast of the lamb. And we'll have, uh, I mean, a, a literal feast with Jesus and there'll be an abundance of wine. And that's the experience that we should all we should all crave. We should all want. This is what scripture invites us to, to taste and see that the Lord is good. That's what Jesus is calling us to. The the third thing is this. This is the last one. We are called to express our true need. Um, I said that phrase. I asked that maybe three or four weeks ago. I don't even remember when it was. What is it that we all need? Well, we need Jesus. That's that's the the kid answer. We need Jesus. But in this passage, uh, our true need is is really expressed in the terms of, of God's presence. Jesus is in the midst of ordinary people at a wedding, and he's offering them not just a miracle, but, but his presence. And, and I mean, that's, that's something that we all need. Christ came so that we could experience the true presence of God. And this is the secret of experiencing God's presence, that Jesus forgives you of your sin. Because the Bible says that God makes the world perfect. He put perfect people on the earth, and then we rebelled. Adam and Eve did what God said not to do. They ate from the tree of uh, the knowledge of good and evil. And what happened? Sin ensued. Sin covered the world. Sin came into man. And, and so now there's this big gap between us and God. And so we need a mediator. There's no way for us in and of ourselves to bridge the gap between a perfect God and imperfect people. And so God sends Jesus. He sends us a mediator. More than that, he sends us, as John says in chapter 1, a lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so the beautiful picture there is of one who atones for our sin. He, he takes the, the penalty of our sin that we are due, and, and the penalty for sin in the Bible is death. So Jesus takes that penalty in himself. He propitiates. He appeases the wrath of God and moves it off of us onto himself. He expiates. He he causes to come. He causes our he he makes us clean. He takes all that the sin that's in us. um, He he takes the burden of it off of us and he takes it onto himself. That's the picture that Jesus gives us in, in Scripture. And. If I could impress on you anything but this, this one point, this, this is what we need to get to. Um, 
there's one step that we have to get to, to to experience life with God. And that this is the step. This is where they came to in this in this miracle here. It's being able to admit that the wine has run out. The wine is out. And it was Mary that said it. She brought it to Jesus and Jesus did something about it. And this is what this is what I mean by the wine is out. We have no more wine. It means two things. Firstly, firstly, it means uh, perhaps uh, perhaps you've tried everything that there is to try to satisfy yourself. You've tried great sexual experiences. You've tried to earn your way to heaven. You tried to be good, but can't. You've tried, I mean, you've worked, labored hard to earn a good job so you get good money, so you'll gain more power. And all those things have left you waning. I mean, you, you're so unsatisfied by those things that now the things that you thought would gain you rapport, you're shamed and, and guilt, guilt about, guilted about. And so the wine has run out simply means, you know, I've tasted and I've seen that anything the world can provide me, this, the wine that the world can give me, it, it, it doesn't satisfy. And, and again, I guess if you're, if you're one of those that, that abstains from wine, it basically says life is not going the way that I want it to, and I just need some help. And so the, the wine has run out. It means you're willing to come to Jesus and say, Lord, I've done all I can to make my life go right, and I just need some help. And that's when Jesus steps in. And Jesus does what only he can do. He, he responds to us. When you say, I'm all out, I don't have any wine, Jesus says, I'm all in. And his all in is he's giving you himself. And he's giving you himself that's died on the cross in your place for your sin. Isaiah says it like this. Come, everyone who's thirsty, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And this talks a lot about a lot. Talks about a lot of things. There's a little bit of water in here. There's milk. I thought there was bread in here too. There ain't no bread. All right. So water and milk. But the, the train your eyes on the word wine. He's offering us wine. It's this picture of of free wine. I mean. Have you tasted this wine? What's Jesus talking about here? here? Here's the deal. Jesus comes to us and he speaks to us and he offers us the exchange of new wine for the dirty water of our sin. You can experience Jesus' new wine of forgiveness. You know, as a pastor, this is, this is an interesting point to me. Uh, you know, there's a lot of semblance in the, in the scriptures about coming to the water when you, Jesus provides us water. We'll see that in John 4. He provides us water that... That's everlasting. That's a picture of salvation. But I'm supposed to encourage you to come to the water that Jesus provides so that you can get your thirst quenched. But I'm actually commanded to to have you drink wine. Commanded to have you drink wine. Let me tell you. Let me show you what that is. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And we had, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. What's the cup? It's the cup of suffering, but it's a cup symbolically filled with new wine. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so John here is announcing to us that Jesus has come that we might 
experienced life. But he's also announcing that we're not home yet. And so he gives us this beautiful picture of of a perpetual um, remembering of of Jesus offering wine to us through, through communion. And so that's really what we do as we close our service every day. We're remembering the, the good news of Jesus who died in our place for our sin, but we're remembering his blood spilt, that there's pain associated with that and that we deserve that. But we're also projecting ourselves to that future day that he talks about in the book of Revelation where there'll be this huge banquet set just for us, for the people of God, the people who are called blessed because we get to experience this, this huge table full of things that we'll want to eat and the centerpiece will be this new wine that will be a symbol of the fullness of the salvation that Jesus is able to give us. And so if you're a Christian, today of all days, I'm talking about water turned into wine. As you receive communion today, confess your sin, but know that as you confess your sin, Jesus invites you like he invited his mom and this bridal party to come and to bring any care in the world to him that they had and to taste the, the, the greatest one that you could ever have. Why? Because he provides it. And if you're not a Christian, you know, communion is, is a family ordeal. It's this thing where we say you're remembering the good news of Jesus. If you haven't yet become a Christian, you don't have good news to remember quite yet. And so as we sing songs, uh, worship team, come on up. As, as we're singing a song today, Perhaps you'd be moved to trust in Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to put your faith in Jesus, this one who has the power to create, even even to turn water into wine. And if you do, then, I mean, take communion. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the day. Thank you for your word. We thank you for this picture that we see in John, this, this beautiful picture of a wedding, a wedding where an unassuming couple He's throwing a party, and Jesus in the midst of it. He's having fun. And a situation ensues where he could come and reveal his glory. We thank you, Lord God, that you are the God of glory. We thank you that you chose this, the beauty of a wedding, to perform your first miracle. And so, God, help us to see your glory today in its unassuming nature of you not causing much attention to yourself, but basically behind the scenes, doing the spectacular, changing uh, the crisis of the moment into uh, the greatest celebration. You do that in our lives as well. Behind the scenes, you transform us. You do a miracle in our midst. You change stone hearts into clay that you can twist and turn and and just mold into your image. And I pray that you do that with all those here here today and those who are listening. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.